Hello, and welcome to the Inflation Podcast. This is episode six, and in it, we're going to be reading Ben Bernanke's recent guest essay in the New York Times entitled, Inflation Isn't Going to Bring Back the 1970s. Let's begin. We had another bad inflation report last week. Inflation over the past 12 months exceeded 8% a level that evokes memories of America's great inflation of the 1960s and 70s. From the beginning of 1966 through 1981, the consumer price index rose on average by more than 7% per year, peaking at over 13% in 1980. This period also saw two major and two minor recessions and an approximately two-thirds decline in the Dow Jones Industrial Average when adjusted for inflation. Are we in danger of repeating that experience? The short answer, almost certainly not. Although the inflation of the 1960s and 70s had higher peaks and lasted much longer than what we've seen recently, it's true that there are some similarities to what we're going through now. The inflation of a half century ago, like today's, began after a long period when inflation was generally low. In both cases, heavy federal spending on the war in Vietnam and the Great Society programs of the 1960s, and on the response to COVID in 2020 and 2021, added to demand. And shocks to global energy prices and food prices in the 1970s made the inflation problem significantly worse, just as they are doing now. But there are critical differences as well. First, although inflation was very unpopular in the 60s and 70s, as it understandably is today, back then, Any inclination by the Federal Reserve to fight inflation by raising interest rates, which could also slow the economy and raise unemployment, met stiff political resistance. President Lyndon Johnson, attempting to insulate the public from the economic costs of an unpopular war, put intense pressure on the Fed chairman, William McChesney Martin, to keep interest rates low. Johnson promised to raise taxes to pay for the war, and Martin, accordingly, refrained from raising rates for a time, but Johnson's temporary tax surcharge in 1968 failed to cool an overheated economy, allowing inflation to gain a toehold. Richard Nixon, angling for re-election in 1972, made it clear to Martin's successor at the Fed, Arthur Burns, that he would not tolerate an economic slowdown before the election, and Burns took no significant action against inflation. Even after Nixon resigned in 1974, Congress continued to pressure Burns and the Fed to avoid anti-inflation policies that might slow the economy. For example, a 1978 law set a target for the unemployment rate of 3% for people 20 and older, well below its sustainable, non-inflationary level at the time. In contrast, efforts by the current Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, and his colleagues to bring down inflation enjoy considerable support from both the White House and Congress, at least so far. As a result, the Fed today has the independence it needs to make the policy decisions based solely on the economic data and in the long-run interests of the economy, not on short-term political considerations. Besides the Fed's greater independence, a key difference from the 1960s and 70s is that the Fed's view on both the sources of inflation and its own responsibility to control the pace of price increases have changed markedly. Burns, who presided over most of the 1970s inflation, had a cost-push theory of inflation. He believed that inflation was primarily caused by large companies and trade unions, which used their market power to push up prices and wages, even in a slow economy. 
he thought the Fed had little ability to counteract these forces. And as an alternative to raising interest rates, he helped persuade Nixon to set wage and price controls in 1971, which proved a spectacular failure. Inflation gained momentum over the decade, ending only with the shock treatment applied by the Fed under Paul Volcker in the early 1980s, which resulted in a deep recession. Burns wasn't wrong that factors beyond the Fed's control can contribute to inflation. Supply-side forces are, indeed, important today. Not only the increases in global energy and food prices already mentioned, but also pandemic-related constraints, like the disruption of global supply chains. Unfortunately, the Fed can do little about these supply-side problems. Nevertheless, today's monetary policymakers understand that as we wait for supply constraints to ease, which they will eventually, the Fed can help reduce inflation by slowing growth and demand. Drawing on these lessons of the past, they also understand that by doing what is needed to get inflation under control, they can help the economy and the job market avoid much more serious instability in the future. In short, the lessons learned from America's great inflation by both the Fed and political leaders make a repeat of that experience highly unlikely. The Fed today recognizes that it must take the leading role in controlling inflation, and it has the tools and sufficient political independence to do so. After a delay caused by a misdiagnosis of the economy in 2021, the Fed has accordingly turned to tightening monetary policy, ending its pandemic-era bond purchases, announcing plans to shrink its security holdings, and raising short-term interest rates. Markets and the public appear to understand how the Fed's approach has changed from the earlier era I described. Although the Fed has raised interest rates only twice this year, this week's meeting will no doubt bring an additional increase, financial conditions have already tightened significantly. For example, mortgage rates have risen by more than two percentage points in the past year, and markets anticipate that policymakers will persist in their anti-inflation campaign. And while market indicators and surveys of consumers reveal that inflation is expected to remain high over the next year or two, for the most part, they suggest continued confidence that, over the long term, the Fed will be able to bring down inflation close to its 2% target. This confidence, in turn, makes the Fed's job easier by limiting the risk of a, quote, inflationary psychology, as Burns once put it, on the part of the public. Since Mr. Volcker's conquest of inflation in the 1980s, Bursts of inflation have tended to die away more quickly and with less need for monetary restraint than in previous episodes. None of this implies that the Fed's job will be easy. The degree to which the central bank will have to tighten monetary policy to control our currently high inflation and the associated risk of an economic slowdown or recession depends on several factors. How quickly the supply side problems, high oil prices, supply chain snarls, subside, how aggregate spending reacts to the tighter financial conditions engineered by the Fed, and whether the Fed retains its credibility as an inflation fighter, even if inflation takes a while to subside. Of these, history teaches us the last may be the most important. Inflation will not become self-perpetuating, with price increases leading to wage increases leading to price increases, if people are confident that the Fed will take the necessary measures to bring inflation down over time. The Fed's greater policy independence, its willingness to take responsibility for inflation, and its record of keeping inflation low for nearly four decades after the Great Inflation, make it much more credible on inflation today than its counterpart in the 1960s and 1970s. The Fed's credibility will help ensure that the Great Inflation will not be repeated, 
and Mr. Powell and his colleagues will put a high priority on keeping that credibility intact. Okay. Um, this essay seems like it's leaning pretty heavily on the fact that the Fed can do, that the Fed has a toolkit with which it can do whatever it wants. It's completely independent, and there's not going to be any pressure put on the Fed. I think that that may be true now when the federal funds rate is around 1%. But the difference between the pushback that the Fed was getting back in the 60s and 70s and the pushback that is non-existent right now is that interest rates are very low right now and they were comparatively high back then. Uh, I'll drop this in the show notes, but the federal funds rate was between 4 and 8% for the time period that he's describing. Um, and right now it's at 1%. We anticipate tomorrow it's probably going to go up by 75 basis points, so, you know, to 1.75%. But still, that's very low by comparison. And the big question is, if they need to, can they even raise it to where it might need to go? Can they pull a Volcker? Okay, so I just looked at numbers again, and Volcker raised rates immediately when he, bec- when he came into power in 1979. And he raised them up to 15%, 20% at times, with almost no notice. And the spread between, between inflation and his federal funds rate was, I mean, he'd usually go for a funds rate over the rate of inflation. I mean, there were times when he went from, from February to March where the interest rate went from 15% all the way up to 20% with no notice. Now, we're arguing whether or not, you know, over a quarter of a percent of interest when inflation is is out of control. Even if we do get a Volcker in in control, can can they do it? I mean, that's what I was getting to earlier. And it's almost depressing to talk about because back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, our debt to GDP was about 40%. Uh, So you can imagine... Imagine a person with uh, student loans and they make $100,000 a year and their total amount owed in student loans is $40,000. Not comfortable, but certainly, certainly, certainly sustainable, certainly doable. Now imagine that same person owes $124,000 in student loans uh, while their income remained the same. So that's, that's where we're standing right now. So far, that debt hasn't been a huge burden to us because interest rates are so low. But when we go raising interest rates on ourselves, that's going to start hurting pretty quick. And it probably does mean that we, we can't raise interest rates to 20%. In the last, uh, in episode number four, I discussed this, and I think it was around 13.6% of the national budget goes towards servicing the national debt interest payments on the national debt. So if you imagine that the interest rates go up by 10x on the national debt, um, then we're going to be paying out more than than we have in tax receipts. So that's not going to do it. That's not going to work. But could we double it, triple it, quadruple it? Possibly. Will that be enough? I don't know. I know I haven't been hearing this a whole lot, but 
once people start to realize this, is this going to put a little bit of doubt into people's minds? Enough doubt to keep those inflation expectations heightened? So the next piece, he seems to write off a wage price spiral because he seems to think that workers are going to have confidence in the Fed. But workers don't calculate their wage demands off of confidence in the Fed in some vague sense. They really calculate their wage demands off of two things, what they think they can get and how much their expenses are going up. If I get an increase from my landlord of uh, 18% for my rent, and meanwhile my food costs are going up by 11.9% per year, I'm not going to be terribly happy with a 5% pay increase. Because that's, you know, on a net basis, I'm losing a lot of purchasing power and I'm getting poorer. So I'm going to want something like 20% pay increase, which is going to sound like a lot, but really that's not that much more than just, you know, keeping even. Uh, At minimum, people are going to want a 10% pay increase. And at true minimum, they're going to want the 8.6%, which doesn't truly reflect the increased prices, but it does reflect the prices that people pay after substitutions and the value that they get after quality improvements. But frankly, most consumers are more concerned about the prices that they pay and how it affects their bottom line. Also, people tend to know their value, and if they feel like they're irreplaceable, then they might ask for a raise because of that. And right now, we have a pretty tight labor market. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics is reporting that there are only 0.5 unemployed persons per job opening, or there are two open jobs for every person looking. This is a 15-year low, and this worker shortage could provide plenty of fuel to ignite a wage price spiral. As workers demand higher wages, which leads to products and services getting more expensive, which leads to people asking for higher wages to pay for those products and services, and so on. The only fire extinguisher here is a recession, which politicians generally don't like. And once the Fed is pushing interest rates high enough to trigger a recession, I'm guessing that Congress and the White House won't be so supportive of Jerome Powell and his anti-inflationary policies, if he truly starts to enact them. So I think, I think Ben Bernanke is basically saying, this time it's different. And whenever someone says this time it's different, and the reasons they think it's different are, in my view, a little shaky, I start to give it a little bit of side eye, and I'm not really sure that I believe them. Also, you have to factor in his legacy and where he's coming from. I mean, he has... He's been in the chair before, and he knows that there's a little bit of a confidence game element to this. You don't want to, you don't want to seem weak, and I'm sure that he doesn't want inflation to, you know, to be a big problem. He also started a lot of the quantitative easing that ended up pumping a lot of money into the economy. I don't think he's going to want his legacy to be the guy that, you know, that started the fire that became the inflationary decade. I think this is also one of the reasons he keeps talking about the great inflation. uh, As if this isn't going to be another great inflation. Um, I don't know. It's, It's all interesting stuff. I think that one New York Times commenter put it really nicely. And he says, 
The very fact that there is article after article stating it's not like the 1970s inflation means that's exactly what it is. The beauty of this is we will see, and I'll be here to report on it. So thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.